Good morning, Mountain Park. Uh, well, so glad that you're here. Uh, especially thrilled for any of you who might be in the room who uh, came for the first time on Easter and you decided, I'm going to come back. I think that's awesome uh, if you're here. Uh, fantastic. We are continuing this year-long series that we've been calling The Whole Shebang. And if you are new, I want to let you know that we have binders for you. If you have any intention of joining uh, with us on this journey that uh, we, we would love for you to have a binder, and each week we're going to throw a piece of paper in there that will kind of keep the story going. And the plan is that uh, the invitation is for you to bring your binder and bring, uh, bring a Bible, because we're going to look at Scripture every, uh, every week throughout this journey. And, uh, and if you have a Bible, just kind of find it in your house and bring it. If you don't have one, don't know where to get one or whatever, we'd love to help. We'll just give you a free one, whatever it takes. We want, we'd love to get a Bible in your hand. Now, to help you remember that this is what we're doing, we have a little jingle for you that we want to show. Okay. Bring your Bible, bring your binder. This is your short reminder. Bring your Bible, bring your binder. This is your short reminder. Yeah, okay. I don't think you can get enough of that. I just don't. I, just, I can't, personally. So, so th- this morning, we are launching into section three of the whole shebang. We're going into the third tab in your binder entitled The Messiah. And what we talked about last week as we celebrated Easter is that the story of Jesus, the story of the Messiah, really is the crux of the story. It's the turning point. It is the twist in the story that reshapes everything that happened prior to that. Now, as we went through the Old Testament, we were privy to the story of Jesus, so that showed up a number of times throughout there. But when you experience that twist, so often there's a desire to go back. Uh, that When you watch Sixth Sense and you realize that Bruce Willis's character actually is dead, you want to go back and you want to watch the movie again. How does this all work? And so what we're going to do uh, this morning, we're going to go back into the Old Testament. And we're going to look at a number of ways that Jesus, we say, fulfilled prophecy. Now that's, that's kind of a churchy phrase, fulfilled prophecy. What I've titled this morning is that, that Jesus is the Messiah who met expectations. That's basically uh, what, what we want to say by the fulfilled prophecy thing is that this is what was expected of a, of a coming Messiah and that Jesus met those expectations in amazing ways. Now the title is actually a little, little bit of a play on the concept. Because in a way, Jesus miraculously met expectations. And in a way, He didn't. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning as we jump in to the Messiah. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, once again, we sit and gather here in awe of You. Wherever we are in our journey, God, may we embrace the reality that you are the creator of the world and that you are here. And so, God, out of, out of excited reverence, we want to hear from you this morning. We are entering into the story of the Messiah, the story that you were laying the groundwork for through all of history leading up to this point. And so, Father, I pray that you would... Um, Make your word come alive this morning, that we would in an incredible way engage fully our hearts and our minds into celebrating the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh man. Now, as we go into the Messiah, we are looking at the first four books of the New Testament. 
We are now into the second half of the Bible. It's actually the last third uh, in terms of space in your Bible. And the, the first four books, they're referred to as the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four uh, official biographies of the story of Jesus. And uh, some people struggle with these biographies. Uh, some people get frustrated with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John because there are discrepancies. Maybe uh, an English professor, an, an anti-Christianity uh, professor of yours, enjoyed pointing these out to you. But there are a number of discrepancies in the Gospels. For instance, last week I looked at the story of the women going to the tomb, and there were two angels who were there. And I looked at that story from the book of Luke. And that same story from the book of Matthew and Mark, there was only one angel, angel who was part of that story. And then if you look at basically the same story in the book of John, there was no mention of an angel. Was it, what was it? Was it two angels? Was it one angel? Was it zero angels? Some may conclude from all that, well, if they don't even know how many angels there are, how can there be accuracy? How can I rely on Jesus being God part if you can't even get the number of angels correct? Some may be frustrated with the Gospels because they're not complete. They don't tell the full story. That there's information about Jesus being born and a little bit about what happened prior to His birth. And there's one story when He was a young boy. And then the three years of His public ministry. That's it. What about the rest of the time? If this is the Messiah, this is the one that we've been waiting for, why did our Gospels not include the whole story? the 30 years of him growing up and developing. It's, it's incomplete and it, and it can be frustrating. It's important as we go into the Gospels to fully embrace and understand the intention of the writers. Why they provided us with the writings that we have. If we have an assumption as to why they wrote this, then it's going to shape our reading of it. And their intention was not to give us a perfectly complete story of Jesus. I have a personal journal, a family journal that I have in, on my computer. And please don't look for it. Okay? If you find my uh, computer, don't look for it in there. It's all these little stories that whenever I get the chance, I throw down these little family journal stories about my kids, about my wife, and etc. and all these things that, are, that, that happen. I have three different journals on my computer. Please don't look at any of them. But, uh, but uh, it, this is just kind of my journey. And sometimes I may, it might be a while before I get to it. Before, you know, it might, for whatever reason, it might be big spaces. If you looked at that journal, which you're not going to do, but if you did, and you wanted to get from that the story of our family, you'd be grossly disappointed. Because that's not the intent of my writing. My writing is not to say, it's not to like Twitter, we went to the grocery store today. That's not the intent of this. It's just to capture the, the memories and the thoughts and the feelings about being a husband, about being a dad. The intention of that writing is not to have a complete story of our family history. And so it's important for us to have an understanding of what the intention of the gospel writers was. It was not to have a complete story of Jesus. The intention of the gospel writers, especially Matthew and Luke, which is what we're going to look at this morning, the intention of these writers primarily is to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. He is the one that they've been waiting for. 
That's, their, that's the reason that they wrote these Gospels. So for instance, they don't write when Jesus was born. This is the Messiah, the crux of the entire story. And we don't even know what year he was born. Jesus was not born 2010 years ago. It was probably closer to 2014. We don't even know when he was born. Yet, there were other details that the writers were so adamant about including. And I want to walk through some of those details with you. Turn with me, if you brought your Bibles, to Luke chapter 1. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. And each of these Gospels are, are kind of long. Some of the books in the Bible are, are a little bit shorter. But these Gospels are a little bit longer as they tell the story of Jesus. Luke is the third one. I'm looking at verse 34. This is the story of the, the proclamation of the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 34. The angel tells Mary that she will be with child. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This information was so important because way back in Isaiah chapter 7, the writer says that this, that this Messiah will be the child of a virgin. And so this was an important part that Luke wanted to make sure was part of the story. Jump to Luke chapter, chapter 2. Verse 4 also part of the birth story. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. This was so essential that the writer make it known that the census brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. They went to Bethlehem. And you can read way back in Micah, one of the minor prophets from the Old Testament. We looked at, at Micah a few weeks back. And at one point he says that the Messiah would come from this little town called Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. This was, this was important information. Now, now all this, we're going to put it up all, on the screen. It is in your uh, program. The notes are in there. I'm going to look at eight different examples here. Just going to zip through eight. Now I want to jump to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to look at four in the book of Luke and four in the book of Matthew. Luke chapter 19, verse 33, gives this information in the story. As they were untying the colt. Oh, let me back up. This is uh, as they were entering into Jerusalem for what was Holy Week, the final week of Jesus walking on this earth prior to the, uh, to the Easter story that we uh, celebrated last week. So this was as they were entering into Jerusalem, verse 33, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Three times it says that Jesus was on a colt. Why, why include this information? I mean, if you're telling a story, do you have to mention whether it was a Ford or a Chev that you pulled up in before the story happened? I mean, why mention the colt? Because way back in Zechariah, which was one of the post-exile prophets, he says that Jesus, that the Messiah, doesn't mention the word Jesus, that Zechariah says that the Messiah would walk in on a colt. So when this happened, these writers went, boom, we got to capture this part of the story. 
Let me jump to uh, chapter 23. Stay with me. Stay with me here. We're having fun. Whether you, whether, you, whether you know it or not, you're having fun. Chapter 23, verse 20. Here is the, um, the trial story. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then released to you. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. Way back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, this section of Isaiah where the prophet of old talks about a suffering servant that we understand to be the Messiah. It says that this suffering servant was despised and rejected by men. Boom, this is what happened in the trial scene with Jesus. Jump with me to the book of Matthew now. We're four in, four to go. Matthew chapter 26. So we're near the end of the Matthew story. All, these eight that I'm looking at, they're all in chronological order of the story of Jesus. But now we're jumping to Matthew's version. Chapter 26, verse 21. And while they were eating, I'm sorry, this isn't quite chronological. This backs up a little bit. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus said, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl, in other words, where the bread was, with me, will betray me. And way back in Psalm 41, it says that a close friend, one who shares bread with the Messiah, will betray the Messiah. This writer wanted to make this very clear that this part of the story, this was talked about hundreds of years prior to that. Jump to chapter 27, verse 12. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they were bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Back in Isaiah 53, this chapter about the suffering servant, it says that, that this suffering servant would be brought like a lamb to the slaughter and that no words would come from his mouth, which is exactly what happens here as Jesus is before Pilate. Now verse 28, here in the same chapter. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff, struck him in the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off his robe and put, on his, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And Isaiah says that the people gather around the Messiah. They strike Him. They beat Him. They spit on Him. Exactly what happens in the crucifixion story. Lastly, verse 35. When they had crucified Him, they divided up His clothes by casting lots. And Psalm 122, which was written by King David a thousand years before this happened, a thousand years specifically says that they would cast lots for the clothing of this one who would be the Messiah. Also in Psalm 22, this, this is amazing. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 are really amazing 
chapters in the Old Testament that foretell the story of Jesus. Also in Psalm 22, King David talks about the hands and the feet of Jesus being pierced. The hands and the feet being pierced. This is a thousand years before it happened. Hundreds of years before the Roman Empire existed or before they had even invented the crucifixion as a method of killing. They didn't even know, they didn't even have the idea in their heads that hands and feet would be pierced in that process. And David writes about this specifically. Now I've looked at eight prophecies. And depending on how you understand the wording and the breakdown from one prophecy to another, and all, there's a range, some would say, between 80 and 300 prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. So let's just conservatively say 80. Let's just kind of round down and say 80 prophecies. We've only looked at eight. I'm confident that many of you have heard of these, have read about these in the past. Please don't let your familiarity with them lose how astounding it is that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. That there would be prophecies from hundreds over a span of hundreds of years that would be fulfilled in one person the chances of this happening are absolutely astounding there's a mathematician named peter stoner and please don't get tripped up by his name he's a he's a real mathematician he's not just a guy who said man those are wow those odds are cool he didn't do that he was a real mathematician And what he wanted to do was find out what are the odds, what are the chances of these prophecies being fulfilled. And what he did is he said, let's just assume eight prophecies. Let's just, let alone the 80 or 300, whatever, let's just assume eight, like the eight that we just looked at. What are the odds that eight of these prophecies would be fulfilled? And he got his all all mathematics, he worked this whole thing out. He said the chances of these prophecies being fulfilled in this one person would be 1 times 10 to the 17th power. Now, for those of you who don't really care about numbers, and you're going, please don't mention numbers in church, uh, these are not good odds. You would would not want to go to Wild Horse Pass with those odds in your favor. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. So what he said is just to kind of help get a picture of what these odds would look like, is he said, imagine taking a tile, a two-by-two tile, and laying down a number of these tiles on the uh, platform here. So you're going to lay them all down here. You're going to actually cover the entire stage and then getting enough tiles to fill the auditorium and then actually fill the entire place where our, where our church stands, and actually to go all the way down Pecos Road with these two-by-two two tiles, all the way down, and then actually to cover all of Ahwatukee with these two-by-two two tiles, and then to actually extend into Chandler and all of Greater Phoenix, covering the entire city. Actually, let's go with the state, the entire state of Arizona. Okay, the country of the United States. Let's do the whole world. Let's cover the entire world with these two-by-two two tiles. And then you have unlimited time, unlimited resources to go and investigate all that you want because one of those tiles is painted red underneath. One of those tiles. And if you can have all the time and all the resources you wanted to go anywhere, but you could kneel down 
and pick one tile anywhere in the world, the chances of you bending down and picking up the tile that's painted red underneath are one in ten to the 17th power. Don't miss how astounding. We're looking at eight of the prophecies, let alone 80 or however, however many there were. These are astounding odds that Jesus would fulfill these prophecies. Now, one thing that I've, I've always struggled with as I've learned the story of Jesus and how the Old Testament flows into the New Testament and how the Jewish faith relates and connects with the faith of Christianity. One thing that I've always struggled with is with those kind of odds, how could it have been that so many Pharisees and followers of God then and now continue to struggle with Jesus as the Messiah? How could it be with with all those prophecies all fulfilled in the person of Jesus? How could it be that so many don't embrace Jesus as the Messiah? It's certainly not because the Pharisees or modern-day Jewish people are foolish. It's not that they're taking all this, this impenetrable evidence and just setting it aside and pretending it doesn't exist. There's a reason. And here's where, where I want to challenge this concept of the Messiah who met expectations. Because in a way, He did. He fulfilled astronomical odds. He fulfilled the expectations. But in a way, He wasn't what they expected. We have to go back into the story. We have to go back into our whole shebang story and remember just what we talked about last time, that the people of God had been exiled. And if you're new, then you might, have, you might kind of want to go back and kind of learn more about what we mean by the exile. But the exile was, was this time, a significant time in Jewish history where the people of God were taken out of their own city, out of their own land, the promised land, and scattered throughout. And then eventually they were uh, brought back and for hundreds of years they had... Uh, come back to Jerusalem. They, they rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls, as we talked about last time. But the temple wasn't what it used to be. The walls weren't what they used to be. And the Jewish people did not have the power in their own city that they used to have. And so the expectation of the Jewish people is that a Messiah would come and change all that. But when Jesus came... The power was not in the hands of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. The power, when Jesus came, was in the hands of who? The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire at this time was enormous, enormously powerful, enormously oppressive. And this Roman Empire, they did not have any respect for the God of the Jews. They viewed their own Caesar as God. Caesar was God. Not this unknown, unseen God of the Jewish people. And so for the Jews, their expectation was that a Messiah had to come and stop the oppression and take over political, physical power in the area. And and it would not be fathomable that God would do anything else in His whole shebang story other than give power, political, physical power back over to the Jewish people. So in a very real sense, Jesus Christ did not meet the expectations 
of the Jewish people. He was a poor carpenter from Nazareth. Scripture says, what good could come from Nazareth? I mean, I'd be like Chandler. I mean, what good? No, I just get. I know. I know some of you. But I mean, it'd be like Nazareth. What possibly, how could we possibly imagine that the Messiah we've been waiting for came from there? A man who was poor, who had no apparent political power. No authority that they expected him to have. See, it's so much about expectations. That's why I titled this The Messiah Who Met Expectations. Life has so much to do with our expectations. Our response to life has to do with what we expected out of that thing that we're about to encounter. Expectations shape so much. I'm going to be dorky here for just a moment and uh, bear with me. But, but uh, whenever Star Wars Episode One came out, some of you might remember that. I can't remember when it was exactly. Anyone know the year that that... No, no, the Episode One. That was Episode Four. Like when the, the fourth episode... Good for you. Uh, so, uh, episode, see, I'm dorky enough to know that that was wrong. Uh, so, but, so it's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. So, so episode one came out 2000, something like that. Okay, it's the one with little Anakin and, and the Naboo stuff. Okay, so Star Wars episode one came out. I, feel, I already sense that I'm just distancing myself from some of you. Right but just bear with me for 40 seconds. Star Wars Episode One came out, and there was no way this movie was going to meet the expectations on it. Here, Star Wars, the greatest uh, series of movies that had, ever, that had ever been made, came out, blew the world away in terms of cinematography. There's no way this, this prequel that came out, whatever, X number 15, 20 years after the originals, that this movie was going to meet the expectations. No possible way. And then... I mean, poor George Lucas. There's no way he could meet the expectations of people. And then you, you go in and saw the movie, and Jar Jar Binks comes on the screen. Oh, oh, Mitsa, Mitsa, very annoying. And there was no way for Georgie to recover from this. That there was no way this movie was going to meet the expectations. Now, compare that to any Van Diesel movie. I have a rule that I'm not going to watch a Van, Van Diesel movie. That there's just, they just don't, they just, Good Vin Diesel movie. That's just kind of an oxymoron. So one one day, my my, my wife she 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 picked the movie and she came home with a Vin Diesel movie. My expectations were so low. We watched the movie and I said that was great. That was fun. I totally enjoyed that. My expectations were so low. It was actually good. Then we recommended it to friends. So their expectations went up and they said, what a loser movie this was. It has so much to do. And they were right. It has so much to do with our expectations. This shows up so clearly in marriage. We talk about the expectations in terms of marriage. We talk about when you uh, connect with somebody, that the premarital journey, it's about looking at your family of origin, what kind of baggage you're bringing in, what kind of expectations of roles and, and habits and thoughts for the future, that we need to, to deal with those, with those expectations. It's such a powerful way that we interact with one another. And it's the same in terms of our expectations of God. And it was for those who encountered Jesus 2,000 years ago. That for the Pharisees, Jesus did not meet their expectations. Not even close. But for Matthew and Luke in particular, and all those who had gathered around Jesus, Jesus was the fulfillment of of these prophecies that they've been reading about and thinking about and praying over for centuries. Jesus is the Messiah. 
So let me flip that back to you. What are your expectations of God? What were your expectations when you came into relationship with Jesus Christ? And if that isn't a part of your story yet, what are your expectations of that moment, that, that day, when you say, I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What do you expect will happen at that moment? It's pretty important to think about what your expectations are. Because the Pharisees and Matthew and Luke saw the very same Jesus and had an incredibly different experience with him. So I want to talk just firstly about, um, about two things that we should not expect in terms of an interaction with Jesus Christ. And then I want to talk about a big one that we can. Two things that we should not ex- expect, first of all, is instant change. Now that happens sometimes. Sometimes there is an interaction where there is an instant healing, where there is instant freedom from a long-term addiction, and the Holy Spirit comes in and boom, God is absolutely that powerful. Absolutely it happens. But it's a pretty dangerous thing to expect that that's how God's going to work. To expect and say, boom, this is how it's going to happen. That when you come up out of the water from baptism, that just, boom, your skin is going to feel different and better. You're just going to instantly be a transformed person. See, because God is not in the business of microwavable transformation. Our society is so quick, so instant, and it's hard to understand that growth always takes time. And so the transformation that we're talking about in terms of the series, in terms of following Christ, it's it's, it's never, it's so rarely an instant thing where immediately my desires change, immediately I make good decisions, immediately I'm transformed. Typically, transformational change develops from growth. And growth in the natural world takes time. We forget this because we want strawberries, so we go to the grocery store and Boom, they're right there. They're they're instantly right there. You don't even have to wait in line because you just go beep and you go through the thing. You instantly can come home with strawberries. We forget that somebody had to grow them. Nothing in the natural world grows instantly. So let's not expect that there would be instant change that that we would experience. Second thing, to be cautious in terms of uh, expectations of a relationship with Christ is that we would experience safety. Is that we would be safe. And I, I, want, I want to take you back to the incredible writings of C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia and the interaction between little, little Lucy as she's discovering who Aslan is. Aslan is the mighty lion that, is, uh, that represents the person of Jesus Christ. And Lucy finds out that Aslan is a lion and says, whoa, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? No one said anything about safe. He's not safe, but he's good. Mm. That just envision the power and the might of that lion. There will be pain, disappointment, doubt in our journeys with Jesus Christ. There is no place in Scripture that promises otherwise. But 
there is beautiful mention in Scripture as to what we can expect from a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to take you to an amazing few verses in Luke chapter 4. We're still in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. To some of you, you think you're so smart. I say Luke chapter 4 and you already know where I'm going. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is incredible. He says, Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Okay. This is what a young rabbi would do in the synagogue. This was very expected. And he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah, the same scroll from which we uh, looked at just a few moments back where, the, where Isaiah the prophet had talked about the suffering servant. He pulls it out and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. At this point, there would have been nothing alarming out of this. This was written in first person that Isaiah had written. One day the Messiah will come and be able to say these words first person. The Messiah will say these words. Now, this wasn't alarming because Jesus was just reading Isaiah and the expectation is that he would explain and expand and encourage people through the words of Isaiah. And then he rocked the world. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. Boom. No one, had, no one could imagine someone having the gall, a respected rabbi, having the gall to say that, I am he. And we see later on in the story that, that they, just, they just freaked out. <laughs> they, just, they just freaked out over this. Jesus comes and says, I have come to bring freedom. What we can expect out of a relationship with Jesus Christ is that he brings freedom. And so for those of you who are in a relationship with Christ, uh, encountering God, you are investing and connecting with this church or any other church, and your experience is one that is not an experience of freedom. It is one that feels constricting, feels limiting. It feels like the walls are closing in on you. Then something is wrong. Something is misunderstood in your encounter with the creator of the universe. Because Jesus came to bring freedom. When I was around 20 and I was getting serious about my faith, one of the big deals for me is that, is that how, I, didn't, I didn't know if I was being brainwashed into this. Because the people of influence for me, the church right across the street from my, that, 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 those are the people who were influencing me spiritually. How did I know that I was not being brainwashed by them? And if I had grown up across the street from a, from a, 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 
a Muslim temple if, if I had been Muslim. How did I know that I wasn't being brainwashed? And so uh, I uh, really looked at, at the uh, story of Jim Jones, and I read a book called The Jonestown Tragedy. And uh, for those of you, most of you remember this in the late 70s where uh, Jim Jones had gathered a group of people, took them to, to Guyana, and actually created a whole village of these followers of Jim Jones. And that village in Guyana was called Jonestown. And this was classic brainwashing. And one of the elements that Jim Jones did with the people who were there is he had loudspeakers throughout the complex and his voice, either live or on, on recording, would pour into them and speak into them and shape them and mold them all day, every day. And one of the things that Jim Jones would say every day is he would say, I've sent out a test among you. Every day I send out a test and I have somebody walk around and say to people, I want to get out of here. And the test is that if you turn that person in, then you pass. If you don't, you fail. So all these people, they're starting to question and doubt. And then somebody comes up and says something to them. There were kids who were reporting their mom and dad. Wives reporting their husbands because they started to think differently about this. You see, this is the exact opposite of freedom. This is bondage. And that's what religion can be. Religion can so often be this list of rules, this list of do-nots, this limiting, strapping, tie-you-down. Jesus did not come to start a religion. He did not come to start a religion. Jesus came to bring freedom. Now, some of us, maybe we read this and we say, well, it says freedom to the prisoners. Now, I'm, I'm not physically in prison. Well, if we look at the overall story of Jesus and the, the, the Jewish people assumed that He would bring physical power and physical authority, but instead He brought spiritual power in the same way, instead of Instead of physical freedom from jail bars, what all of us need is spiritual freedom. Because there are elements in each and every one of our lives, whether we recognize it or not, there are bars in each and every one of our lives. Spiritual prisons, bars. Areas of our lives where we would like to do something and we can't do it. Areas of our lives where we would like to stop doing something. We would simply like to stop a certain behavior. Stop a certain relationship. Stop an addiction. Stop a, uh, this, this ongoing watching of television or this ongoing playing of games or this ongoing uh, surge of rage that surfaces whether you're driving or interacting with people that you care about. You want this thing to stop, but you can't. That's bondage. Jesus comes to offer freedom, spiritual freedom. And what happens is we come to the point where we we don't even recognize the bars that are around us. And Jesus wants to identify those places and give us freedom in those places. My goodness, that is the beauty of having a relationship with Christ. We can expect that. 
Remember the movie Shawshank Redemption and, and, and Red, played by Morgan Friedman? He's describing what happens in the prison over time. He says, at first you hate the walls. Then after a while, you start to not notice them. And then eventually, you need them. There's so much of us are in these places of a lack of freedom in our, in our lives. And Jesus wants to come and shine light and release us in these places. I, I've thought about this week, I thought... Man, I, as I just prayed through this, this message here, I thought, I don't want it, this to just to be uh, theoretical or, or reference to movies or whatever. God, in what way have I experienced freedom? So this has been my process this, this week, and I invite you to engage in this too. What, what, what does freedom look like for you? And for me, freedom means that I have an audience of one. What that means is that I, I've spent my whole life trying to please people. I've, I've spent my whole life trying to impress people. I, uh, trying to please my parents, my family, my teachers, my friends, girls. The, and no matter what I did, I just always felt like I wasn't good enough. I was kind of an overachiever as I was growing up, doing, doing as many things as I possibly could. And people say, wow, that's amazing that you could do that. And I just never felt like I, like I fit, like I was valuable. Never. Freedom for me means that I don't have to spend my whole life trying to be better than the person next to me. Freedom for me means that I don't have to impress my wife. I don't have to impress the staff here or a new staff that's coming in. Freedom for me means that I don't have to be liked by all of you. That's huge for me, especially knowing some of you. This is, this is so huge for me that whether I, am, uh, whether I get the opportunity here on a Sunday morning to speak to, to a, a group of people or I am home alone on a Friday afternoon and it's just me, freedom for me means there is an audience of one, a God who knows my intentions, who knows my heart, who knows my failings, who knows my weaknesses. <laughs> and all I want to do in life is make Him proud of me. That's it. Freedom for me is that I want to make my Father in Heaven proud of me. And I don't need the pats on the back from everyone else in this world. That's freedom for me. It's a big deal. What does freedom look like for you? What does freedom look like for you? Let's not stumble upon what, what Jesus has not promised us. That we would not expect instant change. We would not expect this safety. This A a, a journey with Christ is a dangerous place to stay. But may we embrace what He has promised us, the freedom from the the areas of bondage. We we get so limited. That's good news. That's good news that the Messiah has come to give us. Would you pray with me as we wrap up? Father, thank You for this story, God. Thank you for uh, freedom. I know there are uh, folks in this room who are ready to worship and celebrate, and we'll do that in just a few moments and, uh, because they have experienced freedom. And maybe they can't even articulate it. They just know that they have experienced the freedom that you offer. Father, I also know that there are folks in this room who desperately, desperately need freedom. Whether they have embraced you as their Lord and Savior or not, 
there's a desire for freedom. And God, if, if this is the time, if this is the place where some in this room to say, I want to be a follower of Christ because that is what I want. Father, I pray that you would make that happen. God, a conversation would happen today, immediately after this celebration. The clarity would happen in terms of having a relationship with you. Maybe there's those in this room who are followers of you who are so desperately needing freedom and, and you want to bring that today. Father, I also pray for those here who have gathered who need freedom in areas of their lives and they, and, and they don't know it. They don't know what the bars are. Sometimes they just, they just find that at the end of the day, at the end of the week, it just didn't, it wasn't happening. Something was missing. And they don't know where the bondage is. And so, Father, I pray that you would pour your wisdom into this place. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us as we continue to worship? Reveal the area that you want to bring freedom to. Come. Come, Lord, meet us as we worship. In Jesus' name I pray.